welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. We're continuing chapter 3, and this is part 13. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there, for $5 a month, you can not only support this podcast, but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon-only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 3 continued. The course would take Gypsy Moth away from the coast north of San Juan, provided she was far enough north of San Juan to clear a cape east of it. A northerly current could have been carrying her south all this time. It was an uncanny feeling, with not a single light along the coast and no sign whatever of the shore. Yet I knew it was there, close at hand, invisible because of its low-lying terrain. Time after time I scanned to the west and the south with the night glasses. The deck was an untidy mess with sails and ropes everywhere, but I dared not take the time from my anxious watch to tidy it up. I wished I could stop work. I had a feeling of helplessness and could have done with a good strong drink, but I would not have had anything because I should need to stay awake all night and keep my wits sharp, or at least not to make them duller than they seemed to be already. Gypsy Moth was sailing close-winded to an east-by-north wind of 17 knots. At 22.30, I suddenly noticed that the heading had been pushed round to south in a heavy rain squall. Was Gypsy Moth clear of the point or headed straight for it on this southerly course? The depth was 26 fathoms. I put her about to make sure that she was headed away from the land. The wind backed steadily and pushed Gypsy Moth's heading round to the northwest, so that now she was headed into the shore on the other tack, and half an hour later before midnight I found her headed southwest right for the beach, the wind having backed to northwest. For the third time I tacked away from the land. It was not long before I noticed that the heading had swung round from north to northwest, and once again Gypsy Moth was headed into the land. I felt as if I were being hunted onto the shore. This time before putting about again, I took advantage of being on the starboard tack to stow the mizzen more snugly on its boom, being able to get at it better while standing on the side of the cockpit on that tack. The new heading was 110. It could not have been a safer one for heading away from the land. Twenty minutes later, there was a 35-knot rain squall. The log entry reads, Pretty weird goings-on here, I call them. Gypsy Moth is plunging madly in a 35-knot squall in a very rough sea indeed. However, the depth was now 60 fathoms, which was a great relief. Shortly after midnight, another nasty squall came in, a 40-knotter from the north-northeast, and I turned Gypsy Moth off the wind while I dropped the mizzen staysail. Forty minutes later, I had to rehoist it and come up close-hauled to claw off the coast. An hour after midnight, a pretty howdy-do, heavy squalls with winds shifting from southeast to north. Each time I have tacked away from the shore, the wind has shifted and headed Gypsy Moth into the land again. At present, she is heading 25 degrees east of south, but the worry is that the coast for 60 miles from the San Juan Point runs 30 degrees east of south. Must risk a sleep, beginning to totter. By the echo sounder, the depth was more than 60 fathoms, so that seemed safe enough for a short sleep. The risk was that, being fagged to the bone, I might fall into a heavy sleep, and at one place the chart gives a 60-fathom depth only seven miles offshore. It was a horrible sea, and I was feeling seasick, which never made anyone optimistic, but I had to sleep. 
At 3am, I woke to find Gypsy Moth becalmed. At last came the dawn to find me bleary-eyed and weary-skinned, having difficulty in concentrating sufficiently to decide the best course of action. I hadn't a clue as to where I was. There was nothing in sight and the sky was overcast, so there was no chance of any star fix. It was not until 9.15am that I was lucky enough to get a sunshot, and this I combined with a rough DR of the night's complicated wanderings, which I forced myself to work out from the few entries I had in the log for the night before, and my memory of the rest. As soon as I had crossed the finishing line, I had found it difficult and irksome to make myself enter up log data. The project was finished, and I resented having to do anything more. The DR position put Gypsy Moth 11.5 miles north of the beach at San Juan del Norte at the entrance to the estuary. At just past 10 o'clock, I got another shot of the sun, which gave me a fix and put Gypsy Moth 9 miles from the San Juan entrance, northeast by east of it. This was 9.3 miles southeast of my position worked out by DR since the star site. I was well satisfied because this discrepancy was to be expected with a southeast going current as predicted for this part of the coast. Shortly afterwards, a helicopter chattered onto the scene. I guessed with Christopher Doll and Paul Bereff on board. I thought they must be great optimists to have expected to find me and then to be equally lucky to do so. I was feeling in a ghastly, bleary state after the past 30 hours, but the helicopter succeeded in rousing me to rage by putting Gypsy Moth first aback with its downwash and then into irons. I had to let all the sheets fly and work Gypsy Moth downwind right around the compass so that she could get sailing again. I said some very uncomplimentary things indeed about Christopher's knowledge of seamanship as the helicopter backed away and headed for the shore. Presently, a large cumbersome craft showed up. At last I could see the shoreline, but it was so low and indistinct that it would have been impossible to identify it. I seemed to be full of worry, due, I suppose, to fatigue. I could not think how to cope with the visiting vessel. The weather was now fine, but there was a considerable swell running from the northeast. If this big, top-heavy craft tried to come alongside Gypsy Moth, there would be trouble. I sailed on slowly towards the estuary entrance at San Juan, turning it over in my mind. I dropped the mizzen, and after downhauling the main staysail and mizzen staysail booms to leeward, put Gypsy Moth about so that the sails were aback. She then jogged along with steerage way at about a knot. This enabled the skipper of the junior to come within hailing distance, and he remained there. He was a good seaman, and I need not have worried. The British ambassador to Nicaragua and his wife Ivor and Patricia Vincent were aboard, as were Christopher Doll and Paul Bereff. The ambassador gamely started making a speech of welcome. I felt sorry to be the cause of his having to suffer from what must have been a horrible movement aboard the nearly stationary junior in that swell. He invited me to visit Managua, the capital, but I said there was not sufficient depth over the bar at the estuary for Gypsy Moth to enter, and therefore I was going to leave immediately for Panama. I had had a gruelling night and did not want to repeat it. Christopher Dole knew all this, of course, because I had explained my plans to him at Bissau. However, they pressed me to visit El Bluff, at the entrance to the Bluefields Lagoon, 60 miles to the north. It was an excellent harbour, with a safe entrance. Christopher told me that the Nicaraguan Minister of Tourism and other officials at the capital would be unhappy if I did not visit their country after sailing all the way there. I felt pretty desperate about it. Then he added that at El Bluff, 
Captain Bartlett was operating a shrimp fishing factory with workshops in every facility for making repairs. Well, that gave me food for thought. Gypsy Moth could certainly do with some maintenance and repair, and I had been deeply impressed by Captain Bartlett on the radio telegraphy. So I changed my mind and accepted the invitation to visit El Bluff, and I never regretted it. It was then 11.30, and at 11.38 I set course for El Bluff. It was sunny with only a faint breeze, so it would be impossible to reach El Bluff before dark, and I arranged to arrive after daylight. Gypsy Moth ghosted along through the peaceful afternoon in the faintest of breezes. For a while I sat in the cockpit, musing in the sun and thinking over the transatlantic run. The 4,000 miles had taken 22.3 days instead of 20. This was an average speed of 179.1 miles instead of 200 miles per day, a drop of 20.9 miles per day. Looked at another way, Gypsy Moth had been short of the target after 20 days, by 417.9, say 418 miles, of which 150 miles had been lost in the first two days. It was a failure, but on the other hand, it was 38.6% faster than my previous fastest straight 4,000-mile run in Gypsy Moth 4 in September 1966 when sailing round the world. This run averaged 128.78 miles per day and took 31 days, one and a half hours. As far as I could discover, it was the fastest solo run of that length at the time. Then in 1969, Eric Taboli, the great French yachtsman, made a solo passage from San Francisco to Tokyo, covering approximately 5,700 miles in 39.6 days, at an average speed of 144 miles per day. Though at the time of writing, I do not know if this was a point-to-point -point distance. But there was one great, glorious consolation. With the five-day speed burst of 1,017.75 miles in five days, Gypsy Moth had broken through the 200 miles a day solo barrier, exceeding Gypsy Moth 4's 1967 run by 133 miles, or 15%. And with that to give me pleasure, I prepared for the approaching night. Chapter 4. Nicaragua I need not have worried about arriving at El Bluff too soon, Seven hours after I set course, Gypsy Moth was becalmed only seventeen and a half miles north-northeast of the old lighthouse at San Juan del Norte, and seven hours after that, she had apparently moved on only another eight and a half miles. I had noticed that she was moving quietly through the water several times when the log was registering nil. Foolishly, I paid no attention. I was in a state of mild euphoria after completing my transatlantic project, the second half of the day had been lovely, fine weather, and I got in some good sleep while Gypsy Moth ambled along. In the evening, I went to sleep with Gypsy Moth sailing gently along north-northeast. I woke at 01.30 to find her headed due west, headed for the shore at a speed of four knots on the log. How far had she sailed on this heading? On that depended how close she was to the beach. I could see nothing, nor hear nothing, Assuming that she was in the worst possible position based on the depth and the distance logged, it would still be safe to keep going north-north-east until Paxaro Bovo Island was reached this side of Monkey Point, and that was 17.5 miles ahead, so that it would be dawn before Gypsy Moth reached it at four knots and I would be better able to fix my position. I set her back on course, reckoning that I could sleep in peace for two hours at least, and probably four, but at 0420, 
The noise of a boom banging or a sail slatting woke me. The wind had backed 90 degrees to northwest and Gypsy Moth was once again headed west. What was going on in Providence's office? Another three and a half miles of sleep and Gypsy Moth would have been on the beach. I tacked and once again set off on the right course, but presently in the dark I could hear a rustling noise like a wide river running shallow over a stony bed. I listened intently. I could see nothing. It must be a tide race, but the chart showed that there could be nothing of that sort here. Suddenly, in the lightning darkness before dawn, I was aware of an islet, a beam. It was Paraxo Bovo, and it looked to be only half a mile away. It gave me the cold creeps. According to the log, it was not due for another five miles. And then I remembered how, in the sunshine of the previous afternoon, Gypsy Moth had been ghosting along in the Zephyr at a half to three quarters of a knot, and I had been surprised that the log impellers had registered nil speed. I found out next day that the log impeller axles were worn, and the old navigational maxim was once more driven home like a nail hammered into my brain. Never trust yourself to only one method of checking the navigation. Get an independent second check. Gypsy Moth arrived at El Bluff, at the mouth of the estuary, on the 5th of February, and had a friendly, warm welcome when she tied up at the side of the Customs Wharf. The ambassador was there, and the director-general of the Nicaraguan Tourist Board, Dr. Ernesto Reyes, who presented me with a Nicaraguan flag to hoist to the starboard cross-tree arm. I did not have a courtesy flag, because I had not expected to land in Nicaragua. Dr. Reyes was one of the most optimistic pressers-on I have ever met, he hoped that a result of my passage would be an international yacht race organised along my 4,000-mile course, which would bring in its wake an invasion of prosperity-sprinkling tourists. Christopher Doll shepherded and shooed away invading spectators like a hen protecting its chick. Perhaps chick is the wrong word, considering that the Nicaraguan press labelled me Alveo Lobo del Mar, the old wolf of the sea. I looked round for my radio contact, Captain Bartlett, but there was no sign of him until the hubbub had died down when he emerged unobtrusively from the background. Bart, as everyone calls him, the captain from Connecticut, has a pointed, greying beard and would need no makeup at all to play the part of a pirate captain of two centuries or more ago. In the days of Henry Morgan, his tremendous personality alone would have surely made him the most successful and certainly the most efficient privateer cruising the Spanish main. But at Bluff in 1971, he was manager of a shrimp packing factory with 85 trawlers fishing shrimp on contract. Gypsy Moth was indeed fortunate to be here because of Bart's willingness, in fact determination, to help refit her in the factory workshops, which had to be both well equipped and well run to keep 85 trawlers at sea. In the end, Bart himself did most of the repair work on board Gypsy Moth, often working all day at it. I think that as boss of the works, he missed the practical work and the little problems and challenges, such as a rise on a small craft, like correcting faults of rigging or thinking up and making replacements for broken gear. I never found out how old he was. When I asked him, he dodged the question. I thought he could be anything between 50 and 70. Every day we all, including the ambassadorial party, as long as it remained at Bluff, went off to lunch at Bart's house. Other visitors used to turn up, a steady trickle of men on business, and one day no less than five ambassadors from neighbouring countries. I do not know why they were all there, but it was no wonder that their visits coincided with lunchtime, because Donata, 
Bart's imperturbable Nicaraguan cook housekeeper, unendingly produced great platters of the most delicious seafood, lobster, crayfish, giant prawns and excellent local fish, all fresh from the sea, with salads and a huge supply of the local favourite, a smallish red bean. I always had to retire after the feast for a ten-minute snooze before starting work again in the afternoon. Bart would join me later as soon as he had dealt with his office business. Gypsy Moth needed many repairs after being driven so hard. Bart loaded the two broken poles onto his jeep and trundled them down the rough dirt track to his workshops, where the fractures were mended with lengths of irrigation pipe. Fortunately, this pipe, which was used for supplying well water to the houses of the little community, had the same diameter and thickness as the booms, and the aluminium alloy was similar, if not the same. What could have been impossible to replace without long delay was the big lower insulator at the bottom of the backstay, which also served as the RT aerial. This insulator had been crushed, but I had not noticed it before because the pieces were still held in place by the wire. I wondered when this had occurred and whether it was responsible for some of the difficulties I had had in making contact. It must have been caused by too heavy a load on the backstay, which not only stayed the mizzenmast from the stern, but also the mainmast by means of the triatic stay between the two mastheads. The mainmast, in turn, carried the load of the stays from masthead to stem. The load on the backstay would therefore be greater when Big Brother or the running sail was pulling hard in a strong wind. I did not think it would be possible to replace the insulator in Nicaragua, but Bart disappeared one day on a mission and in a direction which he declined to discuss, and next morning calmly turned up with exactly the right insulator for the job in his pocket. To fit it, all the rigging had first to be slacked off, topmast stays, fore stays, and twelve main and mizzen shrouds. Afterwards, all these had to be set up again. Bart carried out the whole job, and in the end I was satisfied that the rigging could not have been better tuned, with all the stays and shrouds set up to just the right tension, which goes to show that neither Bart nor I were adept at the rigger's art, because when I got back to the high seas, all went slack, and I had to set up afresh every stay and shroud. Besides the boom and insulator, there was a long list of repairs, small jobs and large, such as the broken jumper stay bottle screw, the boom rest, the big runner clue thimble, the main staysail boom fitting, the inspection lamp, the leaking galley water pump, the damage to the cine camera housing, and even the cabin vacuum cleaner, all of which needed repair, new parts or overhaul. The self-steering skeg and oar had to be dismantled, cleaned of barnacle and weed and repainted with anti-fouling paint. Bart also had a wooden toolbox made for me and some lead weights for the collision mat to make it sink under the hull in the event of a leak there. Cords at the corners of the mat then drew it against the hull. There were stores to be rounded up such as fruit, water, paraffin and fuel and the other food stocks had to be replenished. I wanted to keep at the job until Gypsy Moth was ready to sail again, so reluctantly I had to refuse all invitations by the friendly Nicaraguans to visit Managua, their capital. Then one day I was told that the president, General de Bele, wished to present me with a gold medal. This put me on an awkward spot because it would be too churlish not to visit the capital to receive it. So an aircraft flew us off from the short airstrip on the rise behind Bart's house. For the first hundred miles, the country was rough and wooded, very green and scarcely inhabited. It looked like the rough back country of New Zealand fifty years ago. 
The river, which emptied into the lagoon inland of El Bluff, twisted its way below with an occasional steamer leaving a wake on the smooth water. For the second hundred miles, there were roads, of which one looked like a new motorway and had a few cars on it. At Managua, I stayed with the Vincents in their bungalow. Ivor gave me a big cocktail party, to which many ambassadors, government ministers and officials came. I'd never before seen so many ambassadors together. It was a geography lesson in how many states and republics there are in Central and South America. General de Bele was most amiable when I was taken to meet him in his palace. I had wondered what suitable present I could give him from Gypsy Moth, and plumped for the burgee of the Royal Cork Yacht Club, this club, founded 250 years ago, is the oldest in the world, and as Gypsy Moth was built 400 yards from the clubhouse, and I have the honour to be a life member, I thought it would be a suitable present. The burgee is an attractive dark blue with a gold harp on it. The general seemed delighted with this and said he would hang it on the wall of his bedroom. After this formal presentation, we passed through a number of impressive staterooms and settled on the huge patio balcony where we sipped Flor de Cana, the local rum, while talking. In the distance, through the darkness, we could see the giant pall of dust from the active volcano Cerro Negro, which spread for 50 miles in every direction above the land, threatening to obliterate everything living under it. When the audience ended, we left after shaking hands all round, and I flew back to El Bluff. I never did get my gold medal. On my return, Bart and I set to work in earnest on Gypsy Moth, after nightfall, he used to come back and have supper with me on board. We would settle down to yarning, but towards the end of a bottle of brandy or gin, the talking would give way to Bart's stentorian sea songs. When he was in full song, he made the welking ring, and it felt as if Gypsy Moth's hull were quivering, the warehouses along the wharf shaking as if in an earthquake. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing. And we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Triamaran Spirit sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Well, that's all for today from The Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.